0: HRN has a brand new look, but we're still sharing the same delicious stories. Invest in the future of food radio by becoming a monthly sustaining member at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Hello and welcome to a very special new episode of Why Food, a podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, and career changers. I'm your sort of solo co-host this week, Ethan Frisch, Uh, and I say sort of solo because this is a pretty cool episode. Um, We have not, as you may know, we have not done an in-person interview since uh, like January 2020 for obvious reasons, Um, and I have also not been on a sourcing trip, a Burlap and and Barrel spice sourcing trip, since. February 2020. Um, so here I am on a sourcing trip in Grenada in the Caribbean and I have a, an in-person guest uh, who I'm very excited to introduce you to. So I'm, I'm, I'm on a nutmeg farm here in Grenada and I'm with Bobby Garbutt who is a fourth generation nutmeg and cacao farmer On her family's farm. Bobby, thank you for joining me in person. Good to be able to look a guest in in the eye.
1: It's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. The amount of like video meetings that I've done, it's actually finally nice to have a meeting in person on a nutmeg farm in Grenada.
0: Yeah. Um, so why don't we, why don't you start by telling us where we are, paint a picture for (laughs) listeners who aren't lucky enough to be sitting in Grenada with us today.
1: (laughs) Well, um, I can tell you Grenada is a tiny little island, um, in the South of the Caribbean. So we are, we are literally 21 miles long, 12 miles wide. I mean, it takes less than two hours to get around. And so we're situated just between, uh, St. Lucia and Trinidad and Tobago and, population of, oh my God, 110,000 people. And I mean, growing up, I thought that was a lot of people. Um, but on it, we, um, we grow, we grow (laughs) spices and cocoa.
0: As as your uncle told us during lunch today, if you plant a cricket bat, it'll grow. The the soil is, uh, it's incredible. And we're sitting in your family's home. Tell us about the house and, and a little bit of the history.
1: Um so yeah, Lester Estate is what it's called, so it's a nutmeg and cocoa um estate and we've it's been within my family since 1949, but I mean it dates back to about the 1700s. Um and so this the house we're in right now is about my god, what are we? Three, over well over 300 years old and around us, uh, literally surrounding us is a haven of cocoa trees, nutmeg, guavas, mangoes.
0: I think there's a guava tree right out the right, window. We can almost yeah. reach out the window and grab a guava the A
1: little the tree. guava, a yeah. little bit of moringa down there and down a bit further. And it's a little bit of avocado as well. It's just a little bit of everything. And I mean, growing up, this, this was my normal. There was just fruit falling out of your ears. Like it's, it's just, yeah. It's and, amazing to be back here.
0: And your decision to come back is a fairly recent one. Uh, fairly why recent. Don't, why don't you tell? Why don't you tell? We'll, we'll get into the story over the course of the interview. But yeah. why don't you tell that? The yeah, catch everybody up, bring us up to speed.
1: Up to speed from how how many years should we go back?
0: Well, you so you started your career in fashion in, production. In
1: fashion production. So uh, yeah, if you told me five years ago that you're going to be a nutmeg and cocoa farmer, I would would have said to you, pigs will fly the day that that happens. Um, but no, going back to it after I finished university, um, which I did over in, in the UK. So I grew up to a British father, and my mother is, of course, Grenadian, and her family has been here for the last few generations, so Indian descent, um, Grenadian. So I was over in the UK. I did, what is it, uh, History of Art, and... Um, at university and then I moved back home to Grenada. Oh, there, the phone goes. That's just a,
0: <laughs> we're in the family house.
1: We're in the family house. Yeah. What happened then was I I couldn't really find my place at home. I got very frustrated. I I didn't know what was my thing when I came home. So it was about three months there, and I sort of nearly self-combusted not really knowing, you know, that post, post-university, post-education sort of low that you don't know what's happening. So I, um, I bottled it and I went back to, I went back to the UK and, um, I, yeah, I started, a uh, I started just, I sort of fell into fashion production. I was, I was a production assistant. I was sort of curious how, you know, shoots were made how commercials were made and I loved all the behind the scenes of it and I just you know you live that fast-paced London life for two years moving boxes organizing shoots organizing catering and you think god this is great this is this is the London life that I wanted to live and then that sort of I think after a while I just I sort of saw through the the put it lightly like fickleness of of the industry I was like well what what am I actually doing in this role what is the greater impact and so I I essentially got frustrated and I was curious at that time I was so curious about global food systems I loved cooking for people I was fascinated how our food got to where it did
0: so after having had this experience of working in fashion and all of the, the ups and downs, the frustrations, you wound up back here in Grenada from London. Um, and, and as far as I understand it, not expecting to wind up back on the farm, not expecting to do mm. this. What was the what was the process of deciding that that this was the thing? How did you realize that that this that that the farm was the thing you wanted to do and had been under your nose the whole time?
1: It was, I mean, I, I kept coming back to Grenada for like holidays and everything like that. And every time I'd come up to Leicester, I'd fall more and more in love with it. And I, I I, didn't know why. I I knew it had so much potential, but at that time when I was coming back, I just couldn't figure out what it was. I didn't have enough sp- experience, I thought, to know what, what really to do with it. And essentially what happened about, March, obviously last year well-timed with the pandemic as I was home for a week literally a week and I remember it happened on Friday the 13th and I felt it in my bones I was like I don't think I should get on the back on that plane tomorrow and I so I I switched from fashion to doing catering for fashion shoots at the time and all my jobs were being cancelled I was like there's actually no point me going back and so what happened, I just, I canceled it. I was like, I'll stay here for a few weeks. The pandemic will be over in a month. It'll be fine. And I'll go back. Life will be restarted. Spend time with family. And what happened um, was a couple of weeks in, I was like, every, I think everyone was like, this is probably going to be for a long time. I just picked up my, my the phone to my aunt. I was like, Lester, let's do it. I'm ready let's work it out. And at that same time, in parallel, I was, I was sort of keeping all my options open. I, um, I met, uh, a wonderful, uh, came across a wonderful lady on a social media post who was posting about a job saying, do you want to fight, fight the, the big, big guys in the food system and, you know, support sustainable supply chains with smallholder farmers in Ethiopia. And I was like, Oh, cool. Rock on. And she introduced me to regenerative agriculture. And so I Googled it and listened to loads of podcasts. And I was like, God, this is such a fascinating way of growing. It builds soil. It builds biodiversity. You have quality product. This is incredible. And, and then I went to my uncle and I was like, hold on, are we, are we doing this on the farm, the cocoa and nutmeg farm? I mean, when I was growing up, it literally looked like a mess. There were trees growing in amongst guavas and mangoes and a little bit of nutmeg around. And he said, yes, that is, that is pretty much it. But I was like, okay, tell me how we do it. But he was like, no, you got to come up to Leicester. I'm going to take you around the estate and I'm going to show you a living ecosystem and how we farm and how we work And when I went around that day with him, I was just, I could not believe that this, we were sitting on this, this, this was our our land and we were actually building biodiversity, building soil. And I just knew, I just knew I had to be part of it. I had to be part of fixing that system, growing what we had here instead of Instead of letting it go and losing the legacy.
0: So why don't you describe the farm in a little more detail? What does it look like? What is it what does a cocoa tree look like? What does a nutmeg tree look like? What is what is a regenerative agroforestry system, or uh, what does your regenerative agroforestry system look like to somebody who hasn't ever seen something like this?
1: Well, when I was growing up, it definitely just looked like a messy, muddy, you know, thickly forested dark forest floor but now i see it, I'm, i walk into you know our fields and it's it's a food forest you know you you have so much bamboo growing around like high grass and then you walk into this sort of dense muddy forest floor and the cocoa trees cocoa trees are actually quite small so as they grow you need um higher trees to grow about so leguminous trees as well so you have a, like a taller forest canopy that shades the cocoa trees below so as they grow they can they can sort of stay protected and stay away from any any sort of harsh weather events so it it has its own layer of protection as it grows and that means that we don't need to have any pesticides any insecticides anything like that it's essentially a living ecosystem that protects itself
0: and what does a cocoa tree look like? What does a nutmeg tree look like? What are the what is, what are the fruits look like? How do the trees grow?
1: So, and uh, so on a nutmeg tree, um, you'd have how tall would you say a nutmeg tree uh, is? It varies, doesn't about it?
0: Twenty feet. Twenty, 20 feet? to thirty feet, maybe. Yeah,
1: and so it actually, you know what? I think nutmeg pods, and so how the nutmeg fruit grows, is nearly like a a yellow apricot. Yeah, I would say, and it has this little, you know, like the bum of a peach. Yeah, that sort of. When it when the nutmeg's ready, it opens up this this we call it the yellow pericarp, is this soft, sort of fleshy fruit, and it reveals this like little web of really like electric red mace, a really waxy, beautiful mace. And within the mace, the protective shelling, you have this like really hard brown nut. And then you have to crack the nut open to reveal the green, the green nutmeg. And that's...
0: Which, in fact, is not green, but it's called green well, when yeah, it's we fresh. Call it, yeah. But the nutmeg, the whole nutmeg that we know that most people will have cooked with is, is the inner, inner pit mm. of this little fruit with the yeah. the dark shell around it, the mace around the shell, and then the fruit, the pericarp.
1: Yeah. Little that. do they know, it's layered in literally all these electric bright colors yeah. that we never get to see.
0: So it, it looks... The tree itself looks like a, an apricot tree or a peach tree, especially this time of year. There's yeah. a sort of a low-level harvest or low-level production the trees are always growing these fruits throughout the year but july july is the beginning boom. of the uh the major harvest season and so we're walking around the farm i mean trees laden with fruit they're literally coming out of eyes, yeah it's falling all over the ground yeah. <laughs> um and how about a cocoa tree and a
1: cocoa tree a cocoa tree is pretty different it's short it has has like quite a stumpy tree i would say and it has really long beautiful like green leaves and on it the cocoa potter is i'd say hmm, quite long <laughs> bye bye it's my aunt. it's my bye. aunt. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh all right great we're recording a podcast <laughs> It's okay.
1: It's just just my aunt leaving. <laughs> she's,
0: we're she's we're always, sitting in the living room of the family house. Yeah.
1: She's always lived there. She's just drinking her cup of tea. Um, but a nutmeg pod, a nutmeg
0: pod, a uh, cocoa pot, cocoa
1: pot, <laughs> cocoa pot is this uh, about half a it, It's really pointy, really like hard, like gristly surface. And it can be any color, it can be red, yellow, orange, green. <laughs> all sorts of colors and there's there's so many varieties growing on our estate that we we don't even know what variety we're growing but to get the actual cocoa bean you like get a cutlass crack it in the middle open up the pod and in it it reveals these like lychee like white beans and you can actually like scoop it out and like suck on the lychee and it's like a fruit a lychee like fruit within itself um and
0: inside that fruit is the cocoa bean and ultimately the cocoa nib which is fermented Fermented. and roasted and dried and ground in a very special grinder to turn into a chocolate chocolate bar yeah it's crazy um how how is your vision for this farm different from from the previous generations or from what your family was doing with it before you came along with this idea and said, "I, I want to do this. I want to take this over."
1: It's it's an interesting one because I I class my my mother's generation, so my aunts and uncles, they've really preserved what we have, and in Grenada, that hasn't that hasn't really happened. Um, having having you know family member to family member, um, bringing down the the estate, and um, so my uncle is an agronomist, and he really is the one that kept the estate going. My grandfather was the one that bought Leicester back in back in 1949, and he passed away in the early 90s. But he was working until the day he died. He was there. He was down in the works. He was down picking cocoa, all of those things. And so when he passed, my uncle my uncle took it on and it's i mean we we're here in 70 acres of of cocoa and then we have a sister estate and that's it's a, it's a slightly higher elevation where our nutmeg grows and that's about you know 120 acres most of it is complete forest um as if we we went to have a walk there on Tuesday but my uncle was preserving it but it wasn't his full time job at the same time so my family as as a lot of indian immigrants that came over here they diversified their businesses a lot we have a hardware store also so it wasn't it wasn't a priority but he kept it going and so what happened to the so cocoa and nutmeg is like the big cash crop of Grenada it's our it's our biggest export both of them and particularly with those two items what happened in the late 60s is that the government realized that there was, with nutmeg and cocoa farmers, there was a lot of winners and there was a lot of losers. So smaller nutmeg and cocoa farmers, they couldn't compete with the bigger nutmeg farmers because they were finding the market themselves. They were going to, you know, London, Amsterdam, meeting their buyers and they could sell easily. But, the, you know, it, it was very imbalanced. And so the government bought in the um, the Cocoa Association and the Nutmeg Association. And what happened was that equalized the market. So everyone had to sell to the government. They couldn't decide on the price. They couldn't decide really where their nutmeg was going, just to keep it you know awful fair. They had good intentions with everyone. And and essentially that that is what stumbled the competition and stumbled any farmer being able to grow, and so because of this restriction, it's sort of just stumped a lot of growth within, like the the farming within the agriculture industry in Grenada at large. And so it's essentially it's it's still in place today, but things are starting to they're starting to look beyond.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and it's yes. a complicated situation because on the one hand you recognize that you know 60 years ago when they put that system in place, there was a, it, it was it was done to solve a problem mm. um, that was creating a lot of inequality in, in the Nam and cocoa trades. But, but as I don't know, as communication has modernized, as uh, farming techniques have modernized, it, it has uh, gone, gone kind of to the other extreme where yeah. farmers are disincentivized to innovate, Um, and, and often because the price doesn't increase sort of with, with the pace of the global market, um, farmers hardly make enough money to justify the cost of harvesting, drying, processing the nutmeg for sale. So, um, with cocoa and nutmeg, we've talked to several people over the last few days who are like, who've who've said like, you know, why bother? It's, um, selling to the government doesn't make me enough money to go through all of that pretty significant effort. So I might as well just let Uh, it fall off the tree, let it rot.
1: That my cocoa out. that everything. Yeah. Sometimes it costs more to produce it than it does to sell it. So really, what's the point of going through all that in the first place?
0: Yeah. So, so well, uh, I'm going to ask you that question. What is the point? Um, you you uh, you orchestrated one of the maybe maybe the only or the first um, <laughs> The
1: first nutmeg shipment shipment of nutmeg <laughs> outside of outside um, of that
0: system. Yeah. Um, how did how did you do that? And uh, where do you think the where do you think that goes? Is there do you see I mean, we'll get in the second half of the interview. We'll talk yeah. more about sort of the policy implications or, or the what's happening in Grenada more more generally. But but yeah, let's talk about that particular shipment. How did you pull that off?
1: So it, I mean, it all started all started four years ago, and it was actually around the time that my aunt, who is really actually she was forward thinking with the, with the estate. She's the youngest of my aunties. And, um, she decided she was like, well, we're growing organically. Why don't we just get the certification? And I mean, with the certification, you know, you have a lot of admin costs to do, but she was like, you know what? It's worth it. Let's do it. Let's try it. So we managed to get certified in 2017. And serendipitously, I also went on a trip with my parents to France, um, and stayed with a French family. And they were like, you're you're from Grenada we love spices they have a spice company there we they were like we know Grenadian nutmeg is the best and we want your spices from your estate and um I well I told her at the time what I was doing she was like you need to go back to this estate you need to make this happen and so that sort of put the put the little inkling in my head and so it was I think to be honest, the government moves a little bit slowly here, as so they so often do as yeah. they so often do. Um, and yeah, over over the two years, we were negotiating with the government that because our nutmeg was organic, that could we ship separately. Because what was happening at the time, we were growing it organically certified, and it was all being pulled together, um, all the all the other growers, um, all the nutmeg together, and so. Essentially, what happened was when we finally got the, the go-ahead from the government, like, hey, you have a license, you know, just pay us a nutmeg tax to make it all fair, fair game. And um, that was, that was going to go ahead. We had everything prepared for March, March 2020. And, of course, what happened, again, pandemic happened. There were no direct flights over to the UK. Everything got shut off. And I was like, ooh, well, I'm here. We can't ship anything out, and I thought I just need to start connecting to anybody and everybody that's in this industry, movers, shakers, and and I came across Ethan and Burlap and Barrel probably like a couple months into being in Grenada, yeah, and I last just yeah last summer and I just tagged them on a social media post and. Ethan said to me straightforward, he was like, "Uh, can we buy some nutmeg from Grenada? I was like, oh my God, okay. The timing
0: worked out. (laughs) We we were having trouble also because of the pandemic and and all of the international shipping and logistics issues. Our regular nutmeg supplier in Zanzibar, we we were having trouble getting a shipment from them. And you tagged me in a post and I went, this is the solution. (laughs) I've been looking for somebody. Uh,
1: Instagram, save me. Yeah,
0: exactly. Um, Let's take a quick break. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. HRN is excited to unveil the new look of food radio. We have a brand new identity and a new website. Our site makes it easier than ever to discover new podcasts and dig through our archive of 15,000 episodes. It's been 12 years since HRN started broadcasting food radio, and we've made it this far thanks to the support of our global listening community. It's because of member donations that Why Food is on the air, along with 40 other weekly shows Your contributions gave HRN the security we needed to stay on the airwaves during the pandemic and are allowing us to reopen our studio. Becoming a monthly sustaining member of HRN shows me how much why food and food radio means to you. At HRN, we're investing in the future of food radio. To do the same, become a monthly sustaining member of HRN. When you do, you'll get access to our very special secret menu, We've gathered exclusive discounts and offers from some of our favorite food and beverage brands. Enjoy insider pricing on goods that will ship right to your door. Join our community of monthly donors, and special deals will come your way throughout the summer. A gift of five or ten dollars a month gives our community the consistent stability it needs to keep the voice of America's food movement alive and thriving. Become a monthly sustaining member at heritageradionetwork.org/donate. And we're back. Uh, I'm here in person, in person with Bobby Garbutt, fourth generation nutmeg and cocoa farmer on the beautiful island of Grenada. Um, Grenada has sort of hit a wall in a, in a sense. Uh, I, I should say nutmeg and cocoa production in particular, sort yeah. of export oriented agriculture has sort of hit a wall in Grenada. The government uh, plays more of a role than a lot of people want them to. And. Um, there was a, a the catastrophe in two thousand and four of Hurricane Ivan, which wiped out a very significant a portion of the island's nutmeg and cocoa trees, and so farmers have had to start in a lot of cases from scratch, growing growing new trees. Um, and and in that time, because at that point, Grenada supplied something like twenty percent of the world's nutmeg. In that time, that that market share has been taken over by nutmeg from other places, and so uh, Grenada is now kind of fighting an uphill battle to to retake some of that ground. But at the same time, nutmeg consumption overall around the world is going up, uh, there's more demand and, and Grenada has this incredible reputation that you talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, would you talk a little bit about, uh, some of those challenges as, as a farmer yourself and some of the potential solutions or some of the things you'd like to see happen more in Grenada to, to
1: bring it back. Yeah, well,
0: bring it back and not even just bring it back, get it, move it forward, right. Yeah. Get it, get it to where you'd like it to be or where you think most Grenadian farmers would like it to be.
1: Yeah, I think I think currently where we are at an agricultural standpoint, that Grenada isn't where it should be, and I mean, as as Ethan alluded to every uh, earlier, like everything grows here. But the the main problem that I've seen, and it's it's from you know walking the estates, making meeting other like nutmeg farmers, is that the average age of a nutmeg farmer in Grenada is between sixty five to seventy and people in my generation i mean i'm i'm 28 most of my you know friends everything you know all my generation don't don't want to go back to the land because you know it's a lot of manual labor it's it's unforgiving you have no idea you know if you're going to meet rain if you're going to meet a drought what your production is going to be there's there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of negatives associated with being a, a cocoa Namek farmer. And it's 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 definitely not a not a glamorous thing. And especially when you don't have the financial incentive behind growing well, then what's the point? So it's sort of it's sort of on a road to to nowhere. And what I noticed and what I saw was that being being here, could things change? Could we could we turn it around? Could we <laughs> my my idea is could we make farming glamorous? And and I think the first way to do that is first make it make it prosperous in that, you know, putting the financial incentive like, okay, great. If I actually look after my land, if I clean things up, if, if I, you know, learn more about how to grow better, how to grow with nature, how to use less pesticides, actually my yield goes up, my input goes down, I can. You know, I can be in nature every single day. I can, you know, go outside, walk around the land, and you're a lot happier. And and if if there's the financial reward behind that to then further invest into my land and into, you know, doing these value-added things, then then that's a way forward. But it, it just it just hasn't happened. And because of, you know, the world we live in today, everyone wants to live in it, you know, work in an office, go to the city, and you know, there's this big pull into big cities being with your friends more say glamorous lifestyles and and i saw the true significance of being working with nature every day and
0: have you met other farmers who share that mindset or share that goal are there other young farmers cacao and nutmeg who who are working towards that with you or do you does it still feel pretty lonely
1: There, there's actually some movers and shakers. And I'd say, actually, we've had a burgeoning, um, like, chocolate-making industry that's that's come about. And so in the last, like, about, so 20 years ago, uh, a crazy American guy came to Grenada. And he hung out with, like, l- l- young hippie hung out with loads of cocoa farmers, lived on the cocoa farm. And he, he, he spotted this. He was like, wait, your cocoa, you harvest it, dry it you know, you ferment it and then you sell it to the, you know, the association, but then chocolate, if you actually made chocolate, you'd move yourself so much higher up the value chain and then you could you know, get the reward. And what he did, and he was the first to do it, his name is Mark Green. He, um, he essentially made the first truly tree to bar chocolate bar. And so what he did, he literally like found machines from anywhere and everywhere, like old bicycles, microwaves, everything, you name it. He put all these machines together and everyone told him like, you will never make chocolate because it is, it's so warm here. You need chocolate to be like a little bit cooler to, you know, temper it very well. But he actually managed to to beat the system and make Grenada's first chocolate bar. And I think when people saw that, when people saw that, you that, you know, you could actually add value to this, that it was actually, you know, an exciting thing to do, then the domino effect essentially happened. And by, I think, mm, 2000, around 2010, we have, like right now, we have about five, five other chocolate makers on the island. And people are seeing that. We're like, oh my God, you can actually have a product behind your name instead of you know selling the raw products. We can actually build a business. We can do the branding. We can tell the stories. We can share the photos and do this all at origin. And I think this is, you know, it's starting in chocolate because I mean, everyone goes crazy for chocolate. And so there is this like growing resurgence, albeit it's still a very small community now. People are really... Really getting on board with it, and I think it's it's definitely like giving Grenada a name in the chocolate industry. Like people I wrote, reached out to in the cocoa industry, they were like, "Oh my god, you are from Grenada, Grenada, I, Grenada chocolate." And so now it has that, and Mock Green was incredible for establishing that on a global platform. Now it's it's really it's really coming coming into its
0: own, and and I mean tourism is maybe maybe the countries uh, national industry and in, in a in a significant way right a, a yeah. lot of the money that comes into the country comes comes with tourists um do you see a connection there is there a relationship between the kind of agriculture that we're talking about and tourism
1: yeah definitely and i think well tourism definitely from the I th- i'd say from the like 60s onwards like that was that was what everyone wanted to be in uh tourism it was really growing the caribbean was really booming but i think now there's this special, unique standpoint that people when they travel, they want to understand more about the culture of, you know, the place they're visiting, the history, what they grow, how they grow it. And they wanna know that where they're going, they're having a good social and environmental impact. And on that, it's it's visiting the farms, it's visiting the estates, it's understanding the history, it's it's seeing like the products of all the movers and shakers that are coming here. And I think, I think agri tourism really is a great way to actually diversify your farm. Like, yes, you can have the raw products, you can make the value added products, but could you also serve an experience when you come here An experience that nobody else is going to get around the world? You know, you go around the world, you know, it's the opposite of like an an all inclusive holiday. You really get to understand the environment and the world that you're that you're stepping on into once you marry agriculture and tourism together. So I think they can work well with each other instead of competing against each other like they potentially are now, they can actually work well together.
0: What does what does the older generation think of what you're doing? Your, your aunts and uncles who have managed this farm, uh, you know, through all of the ups and downs of the government systems and the hurricanes and everything else that they've had to deal with. Uh, what do they think of your of your taking this on and and your goals for it?
1: Well, when when, when I first told them that maybe I'll maybe I'll start getting to this, I genuinely thought they were that I was nuts, that I was genuinely nuts. But you know what? It was I gathered all the family around, like all my my cousins, aunties, and uncles, sisters, and I I essentially brought them together and told them my vision for the estate. And at the end, there was a collective sigh of relief because it could very easily have gotten to the state where we would have had to sold the estate estate and i realized that if i if i got to you know the end of my life and nothing happened with the estate then that would be the biggest regret in our family's history and so they they have given me everything all the knowledge they know they have just gifted it to me. Even all my crazy ideas, they've actually welcomed it. Some of them have worked, some maybe not so much, but they really, I mean, i we couldn't have got to where we are right now had it not been for my aunts and uncles literally being there. I mean, we have family lunches here at the estate every single day. Like they are cooked. Ethan,
0: oh, Ethan and Nori have been Amazing. Enjoying. Amazing. Yeah. 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 Um, so much of what we've been talking about, so much of what we've been talking about over the past week, has to do with policy and and uh, policymakers. Um, uh, is there a message for policymakers, Grenadian government officials, other people in in Grenada and outside uh, who who can shift this, who can move it in one direction or another? What would you What would you ask of them?
1: I would definitely say, well, as I as I alluded to earlier, it took us two years to get permission to actually ship our own nutmegs to our own customer and i say if there was more of a space that we could create for that to make to make to facilitate it and make it easier that's literally all they have to do they just have to you know sign that go ahead sell to your customer we just want to know a little bit about it and we want to make sure no one else is losing out as well so it would be wonderful to have say a win 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 situation for everybody involved But yeah, I think it's, it's, it's definitely in the creating the environment. So building, building the community of people, you know, having, having all the chocolate makers together, having all the nutmeg farmers together and sharing ideas, sharing knowledge, and accessing, particularly, actually potentially capital as well. If we were able to get machinery to start our own value added products, then that could help us innovate and grow at farm level as well. So, yeah, it comes in those two things.
0: All right. Uh, let's do some fun questions, rapid fire questions, questions I'm before ready we wrap for up. <laughs> um, if you were a vegetable, uh, it's an important question. I always start with this question. If you were a vegetable, what vegetable would you be?
1: You actually picked up this morning an okra. okra. Oh, yeah. Okra.
0: Okra, as you say here. Okra, as we say in the United States, yeah?
1: It's sort of, you know, spiky, yeah, mm-hmm. fluffy and feisty. <laughs> yeah. the, and the and ones small.
0: the ones that you had in the kitchen this morning were very fuzzy. Very fuzzy. I'd never seen anything like that. Uh, what about the sliminess? Is that a...
1: Oh, yeah. I love, that. I love the sliminess, right. you know? You know, soft inside, actually. Do you have a favorite
0: yeah. preparation for okra?
1: I'm literally just like... Slicing it, frying it straight on the frying pan, mm. and just nice and crisp before before the sliminess mm. arrives. Yeah, it could yeah. be fast enough. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, Desert island kitchen tools. Uh, what do you bring with you? What do you find yourself reaching for in the kitchen more than anything else?
1: Oh my, I saw microplane grater.
0: Yeah, well, you're literally, a nutmeg farmer. Uh, yeah. That's you had I to say that. <laughs> I have to, I have to,
1: because it's just the evenly even distribution you get on the dish with the nutmeg. Yeah, that's microplane grater
0: um favorite unexpected application for nutmeg
1: you know what on on buttered toast hot buttered sourdough toast oh my gosh sounds like breakfast tomorrow morning yeah that's that's what it's gonna be it's
0: great little nutmeg over the over toast and butter
1: every day it's right next to my toaster as well so i make sure make sure it's always on there
0: um what was a what was a typical family lunch growing up what did what did you eat Curries, so
1: much curries. So, yeah, because my family is Indian through and through, like fourth generation Indian here, literally, you name it, we will it So curried bodhi beans, curried goat, which we call mutton, curried, curried fish, curried aubergine, curried potatoes, chana dal, you name it, you, we, curries. Mm. Curries are our thing,
0: and roti. What else, uh, what are some of the other kind of classic dishes of Grenadian cuisine or what else do you think people who have not tasted it before should know about grenadian cooking
1: well oil down is actually meant to be our national dish but (laughs) i have to say i'm I'm not the biggest fan of it it's quite it's a lot of starchy vegetables in it so you get full really fast but it's delicious it it has coconut turmeric spices and it's cooked on this like big cold pot so you get that really fiery beautiful flavor in it and it's yeah it's really complex and delicious but it's just annoying that you can't eat that much of it been, we've it. been
0: here a week and we haven't had it yet. Weed I'm just saying.
1: It'll right. be all the way. <laughs> all right.
0: um, where can our listeners uh, follow your work, learn more about what you're doing? Um, they can buy your, not at but, but to, you know, not to make a big plug for that. But just uh, where where can they follow you?
1: Uh, So I have my Instagram account called The Sustenance Collective, where I basically just pour my heart out every time I come back to the farm. So if you want to follow that soppy story, then please do. Um, And then actually our chocolate is ending up in a chocolate maker called Orfev chocolate, which is a Swiss chocolate maker, um, hopefully later this year. And
0: being shipped to the US or available in the US?
1: Potentially available in the US. I'll I'll make sure of that.
0: (laughs) Um, as always, you can reach us by email, whyfood at Heritage Radio or on social at whyfoodpodcast. Podcast. You can reach me via my spice company, Burlap and Barrel, at Burlap and Barrel on Instagram, www.burlapandbarrel.com. Uh, you can reach Valerie via Instagram at Foodie in New York. Um, thank you to the Red Crickets for our theme song. Thank you to our amazing sound engineer, Armin Spengen, and most of all, Bobby Garbett. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for being my first in-person interview in a a year and a half and um, for this amazing experience here in Grenada.
1: Thank you.
0: Talk to you all next week.
1: Why Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter.